Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 76, August 29th to September 4th, 1862. Last week, we set up some events that have led us to today's discussion, the Battle of Second Bull Run, or Second Manassas. For some reason, I use First Bull Run for First Manassas, and I use Second Manassas mostly for Second Bull Run. This could be because Bull Run itself plays a larger part in the first battle, as we will see, but I do not know because most of the ground is going to be pretty much the same, so you're going to hear some very familiar-sounding landmarks. Before we get into the episode proper, I do want to mention that we did have Patreon content for last month. We had a memoir review that we have spoken about with the introductions for the last couple of episodes, and we're going to be posting another Patreon episode fairly quickly. I think that for this month, we are going to do a movie review, and we are going to do the 1956 movie, A Friendly Persuasion, which is a Gary Cooper movie uh, that deals with Quaker attitudes and the Civil War. So, This is one, the lists that you usually see of Civil War movies that are less well-known, but nonetheless are very well done. So we could have a tall target on our hands, but you're just going to have to listen to the Patreon episode to really find out. So once again, your support for the upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. And if you want to check that out, the link to the Patreon is in the show description. So, Pope has a choice on August 28th. He can continue in his pursuit of Jackson, whom he has grand designs of defeating, or he can turn his attention further to the west and deal with Longstreet. By this time he has received reports that Longstreet had arrived at Thoroughfare Gap, and it would be possible to defeat him if he acts quickly. Already Ricketts was performing a delaying action that might allow for the rest of the army to arrive and deal with Longstreet before he gets too far. But then on the other hand, there was Stonewall, the famous Confederate general. Pope had mused he would bag them all, when he started his advance toward Manassas. That was still the objective, but remember last episode I mentioned that Pope is going to get a does-not-multitask-well on his performance review. I've seen argued that both options could have been on the table. Pope could have dealt Longstreet a blow, which would then have freed him up to deal with Jackson. While this is sort of Monday morning generaling, Jackson was going to be his main goal. One sort of wonders if maybe, and granted Pope might not have seen this correspondence with McClellan, but McClellan is really hoping that Jackson is going to victimize Pope like he has done with other Union generals. So maybe 
Pope wants to be the first to really hand it to Jackson, uh, whether he realizes that McClellan's rooting against him or not. The only problem is that he does not know where Jackson went. Jackson had removed his troops to Groveton and into a wooden area around the Bronner farm. In getting his troops there, though, A.P. Hill had misunderstood the orders, and on the march he took a wider arc from the original position, passing through Centerville. You remember Centerville as being a staging point for McDowell and his attacks during the campaign for First Bull Run. While stragglers and deserters are going to tell the Union Army that Jackson for sure was in Centerville, so Pope decided that is where his army would head to. Now, it is debatable as to whether Jackson used plants, who said they were deserting, and then obviously fed the wrong information to the Union Army. He had done that before, but this could also just be actual stragglers from A.P. Hill's men, A.P. Hill going the wrong direction. So, it's hard to tell. Marching along the Warrington Pike was the remaining division of Irvin McDowell under Rufus King. King was a New York native who attended West Point before becoming a civil engineer. He would actually resign his commission in 1863. King has brigades under Abner Doubleday, Marcena Patrick, John Hatch, and John Gibbons' Black Hat Brigade. Patrick was a rigid old army officer who had seen action in the conflicts leading up to the Civil War. He's actually going to go on to become the Provost Marshal for the Army of the Potomac. Hatch was disliked by Pope, among others, but he would go on to division command on the 29th. Pope actually blames Hatch, who used to be a cavalry commander, for some of the failures of the early part of the campaign, so that is why Hatch has been relegated to infantry command. Gibbon was born in Philadelphia, but grew up in the South. He will hold various commands throughout the war and continue in the army afterwards, serving in the wars against native tribes. In late August of 1862, Gibbon is going to command the Black Hat Brigade. This is the name it's known at for now, but after Second Manassas, South Mountain, and certainly Antietam, it's going to have a new name, the Iron Brigade. This brigade is one of the only brigades in the East entirely made of what we would consider Western state regiments. Instead of the regular army uniform, they wore white gaiters, as well as traded the usual hat for a black felt hardy hat. I will include a picture on the website for reference. Of these regiments, while the 2nd Wisconsin had served all the way back at First Bull Run, the majority were new enlistments, and none of the others had seen combat yet. That is certainly going to change at the Bronner Farm. Jackson had been sleeping while the Union troops were marching on the nearby Warrenton Turnpike. 
he would awaken and reportedly ride out of the safety of the woods alone to view the column. There are actually some Union infantrymen who write that they see this lone rider come out of the woods, and little do they know that it is actually Stonewall Jackson. Realizing that this was the opportunity, he ordered his commanders to engage the enemy. Jackson could not have known that this was the perfect time to launch an attack. Rufus King had suffered an epileptic seizure and would be incapacitated for the fight, unbeknownst to his brigade commanders. It would actually be this condition that would lead Rufus King to resign his commission, as we mentioned, in 1863. A criticism of Jackson was that he threw his men into the fight abruptly, without coming up with a real plan for assault. Bronner's farm did start later in the day, so time was of the essence with the receding of daylight. Artillery opened up on the column, scattering the untested troops into the nearby woods. Federal artillery would soon be brought up to counter the rebels. In the meantime, Doubleday would confer with John Gibbon about the situation. Their last reports had given Jackson's location at Centerville, so they concluded that these guns must be the horse artillery of General Stuart. As such, Gibbon resolved to assault the battery and take the guns. He would begin by sending the 6th Wisconsin out into the field to meet the enemy. Now the 6th is actually command by Lysander Cutler. Cutler is going to also go on to be a general of higher rank. Meeting the 6th, to their surprise, was the 800-man Stonewall Brigade. Rather than cut and run, the 6th would stand their ground and return fire from the famed unit. Gibbon and Jackson would, throughout the engagement, be adding in regiments to extend the line and provide support. Eventually, the entire Iron Brigade was deployed, as were two regiments from Doubleday. Jackson was having a tough time getting enough men to overwhelm the enemy, as we know he likes to do. William Tolliver sent a brigade under his uncle, but was wounded in the fighting. Richard Ewell would also be hit in the kneecap, resulting in the amputation of his leg. Jackson had personally thrown in units from Lawton's brigade, as well as that of Isaac Trimble. One regiment of each of these brigades would suffer over 70% casualties on the 28th, some of the highest percentages of the war. The reason being was that at a certain point, the Union troops had the opportunity to fire directly into their flanks, causing heavy losses. Now, most of this fighting was done at very close range, and would be punctuated afterwards by accounts of the dead on both sides still in line, neither giving an inch. Union casualties were also high during this part of the battle. The 2nd Wisconsin lost their regimental commander, as well as 276 out of 430 men. Darkness would allow the hostilities to cease. Rufus King was able to take over command once again. His next decision is sometimes criticized, and certainly Pope would level some blame following the battle, but King does not know the enemy's strength. 
prisoners list the number at 70,000 men. He also is unsure of the support he will receive from the rest of the army. McDowell is nowhere to be seen, and despite Ricketts being close, he would probably be no help. If Jackson had as many men as he supposedly had, he could steamroll over the two fresh and two badly mauled brigades. I do want to have a quick note about the Bronner Farm. It's actually a very nice spot of the Manassas Battlefield to visit, and when you go there, you can actually get a very good idea of exactly how close the lines were. Like This was definitely a heavyweight fight, and especially if you consider these famous units, the Stonewall Brigade, going up against the Iron Brigade. These are two of the more well-known units of the war. So seeing exactly how close they were, and obviously we talked about how deadly these weapons were, especially when you kind of pair that with a Napoleonic style of warfare. It's very harrowing to see, but it also explains exactly why there were so many casualties here on the first day of the fighting. Jackson would withdraw his line to an unfinished railroad cut of the Manassas Gap Railroad. Despite popular opinion, the cut was not followed throughout the whole line, but at least used for part of it. The reason being is that some places, the cut provided very little in terms of cover. A.P. Hill's division would be placed on the Confederate left, with Alexander Lawton taking over for Ewell and Stark on the right. William Stark was a Mississippi politician before the war. He was Garnett's aide-de-camp, that general, as you recall, who fell at Cork's Ford, the first general officer to do so. Pope ordered all his units to converge on Groveton for a renewed assault on Jackson. At last, he had Jackson where he wanted him. Or did he? Pope was convinced that Jackson was trapped, but Stonewall was actually in a pretty good defensive position. If things were to go south, he was also in a good position to potentially retreat. Regardless, Pope sent Franz Siegel's and Heinzelmann's corps at the Confederate line. Pope had urged Phil Kearney to move the previous night, but the rough general had responded that his superior could go to hell and that he would march in the morning. Phil Kearney, always good for some quotable lines. Starting the action on the 29th, some of Siegel's regiments would make contact with Maxie Gregg on the extreme left, while the rest of his men got into position. There would be action between Gregg and the division of Carl Schurz. Schurz was a Prussian revolutionary who would go on into politics in America, being very involved in the Republican Party. At one point, the South Carolina troops would countercharge the enemy and push the Federal Infantry of the German Immigrant back. But the Federals would collect themselves and push the Ripples back to their original lines. Robert Milroy, in the meantime, would move his independent brigade at the Ripples Center. He had actually tried to send two regiments in the direction of the fighting, but they were not familiar with the battlefield. And because of that, they ran directly into the center of the enemy. Milroy's two remaining regiments were deployed, but they did little except get cut up too. 
a fourth of his brigade would be casualties as a result. Phil Kearney's men actually have an opportunity at this point to flank A.P. Hill and find his way into Jackson's rear, but this is squandered. They had moved up towards Sudley Springs, the jump-off point for the flank movement at First Bull Run. From there, they did very little. Kearney reportedly did not like Franz Siegel, who, it must be said, is not doing a whole lot either. Siegel is actually dividing up the troops of the reinforcements, not keeping them as a cohesive unit. Pope is hoping to use the arriving force of Porter and McDowell's lone division now commanded by Hatch. Ricketts had withdrawn south toward Bristow, but before he did, his division observed Longstreet's wing and counted the regiments on their way to join in at 2nd Manassas. McDowell received the report, but did not pass it on to his superior, for reasons that are unknown. Porter, advancing from the south, was given orders by Pope through McDowell to push on to Gainesville, a better position to flank Jackson. McDowell would take the division under hatch and move it toward the battlefield, leaving Porter with his lone corps sending well to the south. Stewart's cavalry had skirmished with the advance guard, and they would make clouds of dusk to make numbers appear larger and nearer than they actually were. Porter would conclude he could not do anything when faced with a larger force to his front, so he sat and waited. This move would ultimately doom Porter after the battle. Longstreet's men were ahead, but they were just arriving and not yet into position. Law's brigade would soon be approaching to link up with Jackson's left. With Porter where he was, though, Lee would not be able to attack in the manner he wanted to, so in a way, at least for the time being, Porter is doing an okay service remaining where he is. See if Porter remains where he is, he can actually flank a potential attack by the Confederate, so it's kind of this weird catch-22 moment for Porter where... He obviously is going to get burned for this, but at the same time, he's keeping Longstreet's men at bay, at least for the time being, at least until the next day. Now, Pope's plan, as we already mentioned, is calling for Porter to hit Jackson's right flank, but something had to be done in order to keep Jackson busy in the center, or so Pope thought. Siegel's primarily German division under Schurz was spent at this point so new troops would be necessary. This would lead to two unsupported brigade charges on the Confederate line, the first by Cuvier Grover. In August of 1862, Grover was a brigade commander under Joe Hooker. Hooker had been instructed to assault the cut alone, but protested wildly at this notion, instead wishing to act in concert with Kearney's men on the Confederate right. Kearney would be lackluster in filling out this plan, and his brigade would not get there in time. Grover advanced his men to the right, covered by trees, until he was able to find a spot where his men could conduct a bayonet charge. It had been posed to him by Robert Milroy that this was the only way to take the Confederate works, 
Gerber's brigade of three Massachusetts regiments, one New Hampshire and one Pennsylvania regiment, would find a gap in the Confederate lines and actually exploit this for a time. Heavy hand-to-hand fighting would occur as Grover brushed off Georgians under Edward Thomas. Now, if the assault had been supported by Robinson's brigade of Kearney's division properly, it would have tied down Maxie Gregg and his men. But Gregg was able to send regiments, and Dorsey Pender arrived in support just in time to badly beat Grover and push his men from the railroad cut. James Nagel's brigade of Jesse Reno's division would be next to attempt to break the Confederate line. They would see some success attacking the Confederate center, as Isaac Trimble had been wounded and forced to cede his command to a captain, as there were no other officers. There would be a heavy counterstrike by men under Stark. Nagel's men were badly dealt, retreating through the Excelsior Brigade as it came on in support. This Confederate counterattack would capture some Union artillery pieces as they came in to support the initial assault. Ultimately, there was not a lot gained other than the loss of life to prepare for a flank move that was not coming. Now Jackson's right would be pressed yet again by the remaining brigade in Kearney's division under David Burney, supported by additional men from Isaac Stevens. A.P. Hill had sent word to Jackson that the men of Maxie Grigg would try their best, but it was unlikely that they would hold. Gregg's men, of course, had been engaged for most of the day already. By the end of the 29th, the South Carolina regiments would have their strengths cut in half. Jackson would famously tell A.P. Hill that he expected him to hold if attacked by the enemy. Bernie, a political general, had a large-sized brigade, and he would throw at the Confederate lines with some success. While James Archer's brigade held, Gregg's South Carolinians would be pushed back. Desperate to rally his retreating men, General Gregg would draw his sword and yell that they would stay and die like men. Enough of his men and those of Lawrence O'Brien Branch would rally. Jackson would then commit his reserve brigade, that of Jubal Early, to repulse the attack by Kearney's troops. Despite some success with the largest assault of the day, the Confederate line still held. Now, Lee had been holding off attacking until late in the day when he sent some of Longstreet's men forward for reconnaissance purposes from that of Hood's division. They would actually probe past the Browner Farm and down the Warrenton Turnpike. Pope would be convinced that Longstreet would simply be added to Jackson's line, and that the Confederates would not set up to the south. McDowell would dispatch his division under Hatch, convinced, as his commander was, that the Confederates were retreating. Contact would be made by Doubleday and Hatch's own brigade, now commanded by Timothy Sullivan. Sullivan would have in his command the 84th New York, otherwise known as the 14th Brooklyn. These troops would be pushed back as darkness overtook the battlefield. Judson Kilpatrick would also order a senseless cavalry charge 
to close out the day directed at the Confederates on the turnpike. As darkness fell, there would be key decisions to make on both sides. Lee was right not to press his attack right when Longstreet got there. Reynolds and Shank both had their divisions in front of him, and to the south there was still Porter. Porter did not receive Pope's original orders to attack until later in the day himself, McDowell sort of hanging him out to dry. Pope had actually sent his nephew with instructions to Porter, but he took the wrong road and would not get there until two hours later. This would be icing on the cake, a perfect cake for the Confederacy that would keep Porter idle for essentially the entire day. Lee's movement forward with Longstreet's men would leave his troops in a good position to begin a renewed attack the next day. Pope, on the other hand, would have to make the call of whether to withdraw or continue the fight into the third day. Still concentrated on getting at Jackson, he would elect to stay and begin the assaults again on the 30th. Porter would try to inform Pope that the Confederates were in force to the west as Longstreet had been reinforced with Anderson's division, giving him his full wing as well as an additional brigade from South Carolina commanded by Shanks Evans. Pope would hear nothing of Porter, whom he was already angry at. Hood's withdrawal had been evidence enough that the enemy was in retreat. This isn't yet another example of John Pope being sort of inflexible with his battle plan. He thinks that the enemy is retreating, that's what is going to make my plan successful, so obviously that has to be what's happening, right? It's also interesting, we're going to get more into the court-martial of Fitzjohn Porter in a later episode, but it's very clear right after the battle, there's really no evidence that Porter is going to be blamed for this defeat. At least not yet, anyway. Now, granted, they don't know it's a defeat just yet. That is certainly true. But it's not till well after the battle that Porter gets this blame for his inaction, and that's what ultimately leads to his court-martial. August 30th would open with skirmishing. John Reynolds and his division of Pennsylvania Reserves would make contact with Longstreet's men, who had withdrawn to their original positions. Likewise, there would be skirmishing and artillery fire, which let Pope know that the rebels were still there in force. Porter would finally get into a position to attack Jackson's line, his men hiding in the Groveton woods. On the way to get into position, a brigade under Griffin, who had performed so well during the Peninsula Campaign, would, along with their division commander, William Morrell, get lost and not be present for the attack. Daniel Butterfield would take over, his division supported by Sykes and his regulars. Porter's 5th Corps would be massing a large group of men to assault the Confederate right flank. Now this flank actually allowed for better usage of the rebel artillery, and the railroad cut was manned by William Stark's division, crack veteran troops, which included the Stonewall Brigade. 
Butterfield's men would be supported by Sullivan and Patrick's brigades from Hatch's division. This attack would be some of the most desperate fighting of the battle. Union troops suffered much in their assault. Heavy casualties were inflicted upon them by rifle and artillery fire. Colonel Horace Roberts of the 1st Michigan would see his premonitions of death come true in the assault. Colonel Will Baylor, commanding the Stonewall Brigade, would likewise be killed, rallying and moving his men into position to stop the attack. So brutal was the conflict that the most famous incident of the battle occurs with Stafford's Louisiana Regiment. They run out of ammunition when faced with the furious assault. Rather than withdraw, the men pick up rocks and start pelting the enemy, some rocks being returned by the Federals. Did this event turn the tide of the battle? No, but it does do a good job of illustrating the struggle for the deep cut as it was known. I actually have here part of Colonel Stafford's report, which is going to describe the action. The enemy commenced throwing forward large bodies of skirmishers in the woods on our left, who quickly formed themselves into regiments. Massing a large body of troops at this point with the evident design of forcing us from our position. They made repeated charges upon us while in this position, but were compelled to retire in confusion, sustaining heavy loss and gaining nothing. It was at this point that the ammunition of the brigade gave out. The men procured some from the dead bodies of their comrades, but the supply was not sufficient, and in the absence of ammunition, the men fought with rocks and held their position. The enemy retreated. One last gasp would be that of the 20th New York Militia, the Ulster Guard, attempting to assault the rebel line, but as a result, this regiment was cut to shreds. Porter would call off the attack, men from Hatch and Butterfield streaming toward the rear. Stark would briefly launch a counter, but it was parried by the waiting reserves. I do want to take some time to talk about the unfinished railroad cut and exactly how good of a position that was. It's been argued that it either is a really great defensive position or it's really not. And part of the reason why it might not be a good position is that parts are really steep. So it's not like a very perfect trench. It's not like a World War I trench, right? It's very difficult for the Confederates at certain points to uh, man this position. It's also not allowing for artillery to the rear of the position. It's very limited in the space there. But I will say, and once again, this is talking about the modern-day battlefield. And part of the reason uh, Fitzjohn Porter continues to kind of play a part in the story of Second Manassas is that he takes down very detailed notes of how the battle looked following his court-martial. And because of that, we're able to replicate how the battlefield looked in 1862. So you get a good idea of just how difficult a position this was to assault from the infantry perspective from the Union infantry perspective, that is. And then, of course, if you're having artillery on the flank hitting you, it makes that even more difficult. So that's definitely something that, especially with 
the way the battlefield has evolved over the years, you really get a good idea of exactly how tough a position this was. With Pope's attack dealt with, it would now be Lee's turn. Earlier on the 30th, John Reynolds would report to his superior he was concerned that the rebels were turning their flank. Pope was not impressed, still convinced that the Confederates would be retreating, and Porter would simply be putting pressure on their rear guard. Because of the attack of Porter's men and the amount of supporting units, the Yankees now had the lowest amount of men south of the turnpike they would have during the battle. This would be a perfect time for Longstreet to launch a full attack as opposed to Hood's foray the night before. Hood's division conveniently would lead the assault along with Kemper's division. David Neighbor Jones would be on the extreme right. Jones was a South Carolinian and in-law of Jefferson Davis. He will be with us at least until Sharpsburg, but die of heart complications before the war is over. Anderson's division, which had been the last to arrive, would be held in reserve and exploit any advantage gained by the attack, as would the Brigade of Evans. The aim was to sweep Chin Ridge and hopefully push the Federals back into Henry House Hill. Both of these locations, you remember, had played a part in the 1861 battle. Meeting the assault of the Texans was the small brigade of Warren and Hazlitt's battery. The 5th New York, or Derrier Zwabs, who we met back at Big Bethel, and the 10th New York would face a wave of gray and butternut Texans sweeping up the small ridge they sat on. Derrier Zwabs would not be able to fire on the enemy, due to the retreating men of the 10th New York, the National Zouaves. The 5th would suffer 300-some casualties, the highest for a single battle of any infantry regiment during the war. Likewise, the 10th would be roughly handled with the regimental colors captured, but Hazlitt's guns would be saved. On Chin Ridge sat a brigade of Ohio regiments from Shanks Division, commanded by John McLean, son of a Supreme Court judge. Robert Milroy's men had been sent to join them there, but were rerouted to Henry House Hill by Pope. Reynolds had moved his brigade off the ridge, but two reserve regiments and a battery would be thrown into the mix in an attempt to stop the Texans, with the result of the Pennsylvanians being quickly scattered. The battery would attempt to stall the Texans under Captain Mark Kearns. Kearns would continue to fire his pieces even after all of his men had broken run, performing the six-person job by himself. Texas troops regretfully had to gun down the lone Yankee as he was about to fire a canister at the oncoming Southerners. The Texans would realized the bravery in Kearns and attempt to tend to his wounds, but Kearns would reply that he had said he would drive the Confederates back or die under his guns, and he was a man of his word. The fight for Chain Ridge was a struggle that saw Ohio regiments under McLean hold off Hood and Kemper's men for a time. 
You see, the issue with the Confederate assault was the rapid advance of the Texas Brigade. They had outpaced the rest of the rebels, so their assaults were piecemeal, as were additional attacks by Shanks Evans and Kemper's men. Eventually, the Ohio line would break, caused by enfilading fire. Robert Shank would be wounded in the arm during the action and be forced to withdraw. Siegel would start to throw regiments in in a haphazard manner. Zealous Tower would be wounded during the fight, his men from Ricketts' division. Micah Jenkins, who we met back in the Seven Days, would also be wounded during this fighting. Krasinowski's brigade would arrive in a crucial moment to hold off the enemy for the Federals, after it seemed that Jenkins, combined with other scattered Confederate units, had turned the flank. Men from Stahl and Schurz would jump into the fray as well. Law's brigade would attack Federal positions across the Warrenton Turnpike, on a place called Dogan's Ridge. They would be held off by well-placed artillery and two regiments from the soon-to-be-named Iron Brigade. In total, the Federal troops would successfully hold off the enemy for 90 minutes, which was much-needed time. Pope knew that the battle was essentially over as he secured his lines of retreat across Bull Run. He would cobble together a defense of Henry House Hill using the regulars under Sykes, the two remaining brigades of Reynolds, and Robert Milroy's brigade. Neighbor Jones and his division would actually suffer heavy casualties assaulting this line along the Sudley Road. Milroy's men particularly were ready for payback after attacking Jackson the day before. Wilcox would arrive and Richard Anderson would throw his division into the fray. Anderson, though, would not add Lewis Armistead and an additional brigade into the fight in an effort to turn the Federal flank. Instead, Ferrer's brigade of Reno's division would be the last Union unit to fire and depart before the sun began to sink. Rather than face destruction, Pope's army would be allowed to retreat. Cavalry by Fitzhugh Lee would attempt to cut off the retreating Yankees, but they were repulsed. Likewise, cavalry to the south at Lewis Ford would engage Federals under John Buford. Buford's men were forced to retreat, with Buford himself being wounded, but overall there was no advantage to be pressed. The Battle of Second Manassas was over. Casualties were 13,824 on the Union side and 8,353 on the Confederate side. Pope would keep his army in Centerville for the time being. Lee would decide that he needed to continue to take a shot at Pope, especially with his army completely demoralized and disorganized, but we were going to cover that action next week. Lincoln would not be able to unleash his Emancipation Proclamation announcement after all. For the Confederacy, it is the true rise of Lee and Longstreet. Jackson does come back into form, this is true, but so far Longstreet had not made as big an impact. Lee is finally going to get the massive victory that he needs. 
We will have to wait a few weeks to talk about what is happening out west, but there are some successes there that would definitely see the Confederacy reversing their misfortune from the earlier year. Overall, Second Manassas is often overlooked in the annals of the Civil War. This is not necessarily fair, as it pays a big part of the conclusion of the Seven Days and the prelude to the Confederate invasion of Maryland. Speaking of that, next week we're going to have to have a tough turnaround. We're going to wrap up the Second Manassas campaign, but also need to set up something else. Although we just fought the Battle of Second Manassas, we are going headfirst into the bloodiest day in American history. That's right, we're soon going to fight the Battle of Antietam. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as the already mentioned Patreon information, as well as Venmo. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback, of course, is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>